Funding for The Spark is provided by Capital Blue Cross, focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like Capital Blue Cross Connect Health and Wellness Centers, which provide in-person services and inspire healthy living. Learn more at CapitalBlueCross.com. The Spark is also supported by UPMC, providing primary and advanced specialty care throughout all of central Pennsylvania and beyond. A list of providers in the area can be found at upmc.com slash findadoc. Welcome to The Spark. I'm Anaya Falcon. In the age of robotics, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, self-driving cars, and chatbots, people may wonder what's the future of artificial intelligence and how can one keep up with new technological advances. John McElligott, founder and chief executive officer of York Exponential, has answers for us today on The Spark. He is a sought-after thought leader on exponential technology, robotics, artificial intelligence, economic development, and response disruption. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Anaya. This is exciting. So, John, for those who don't know, what is artificial intelligence? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of confusion around this, mainly because of the kind of movies that we've seen. And we think Terminator, Matrix, things like that. Uh, The way to describe it, the the two fields of thought are kind of a narrow AI, which is kind of the stuff that you would have like on your phone, like how to navigate with Google Maps, things like that. Just taking massive amounts of data and being very good at a very specific thing. When people talk about artificial general intelligence, they tend to be talking about um, an AI that is as good or has as good of an understanding and ability as a human being. That's, a, I think, probably a little bit of a misnomer. What's happening right now that's causing the biggest jump forward is generative AI. So that's what I think people are starting to see with um, things like ChatGPT and chatbots. And if, if you saw on Facebook, everyone's taking pictures of themselves that are yes. turning into avatars. That's generative AI. And that's actually not science fiction. And it's here now. It's going to have a massive impact on the economy. Wow. So what are some functions that robots are able to do today that people may not be aware of? Yeah, so primarily, um, we've had robots in manufacturing for a very, very long time. During the pandemic, though, we started to see a a big push forward in robots in food production, uh, clean rooms, like my company invented a clean room robot during the pandemic. So you're going to start seeing a a lot of service bots. So smaller robots that are going to be navigating the real world, doing some of the dull, dirty, dangerous, and menial tasks. Um, The pandemic allowed Americans especially to experience a more European lifestyle. And so they were able to spend time with their families for a year or two, (laughs) reevaluate what they wanted to do. And so you're seeing in the workforce, there are way more open jobs than there are employees right now. And that's not because we have a lack of people, but there's a lack of desire. So that's where I think a lot of these new kinds of robots are going to be working their way outside of the factory floors and into businesses all across uh, the world. Wow. And how are tech giants creating things like this? Yeah. So so if you look at it from a technical standpoint, um, during the pandemic, honestly, we all stayed home. We went on our phones more. We used the Internet more. And so we essentially, as a whole society, fed this artificial intelligence. So for a while, um, the difference between kind of like a generative AI and how AI was done before and why this is different is the artificial intelligence before, I used maps as an example. The traditional artificial intelligence, you're able to say, I want to go to this destination. The AI is able to look at all of this data and pull real-world data and says, this is the best route to take. There are some accidents here. It should take you this long. 
The difference between that kind of traditional approach and this new generative AI is not only if you stack it on top of traditional AI, you can know the best way to get to your destination in real-time accidents. It can also design new roads, tell you where those roads should go, how wide the roads should be, how many cars they can navigate, what type and how much you should spend to build. So all of a sudden, it's now an architect and a designer and yes. an engineer, and it's creating things that didn't exist before. Fascinating. So what is the future of artificial intelligence and what direction is it going in? Yeah, so I, I think I, I started my company and really focusing on this about eight years ago, so coming up on a decade, and I was getting pretty good at predicting a few years out to five years out to 10 years out. I think I'm probably hitting a point now where 10 years, I don't know that I could tell you. Honestly, wow. it's the speed at which it's happening is pretty incredible. I can tell you probably in the next 18 months, we will see a pretty massive upheaval um, in jobs that were considered safe. And it's starting to happen with artists, creatives, engineers. Um, schools are banning chat GPT because students are figuring out how to use it to cheat on their homework. So all of a sudden, our grading system just went upside down. So I would say the next 18 months is probably when we will see the biggest upheaval. And how we respond to it as a society will determine the direction of the AI. And what are some new innovations that are on the horizon? Yeah, so what most people are seeing, especially around uh, the generative AI, it's probably been very common where people are taking pictures of themselves and it's turning them into avatars that yes. they're sharing on social media. What people don't understand is you're essentially teaching an artificial intelligence what a human being is, um, different aspects of how human beings move. So essentially, all of this technology is teaching the AI to make sense of the world. Wow. What most people don't understand is, well, it seems to be done for entertainment purposes, this AI will eventually very soon be put into the brains of robots, like physical objects. And once the physical objects can navigate the world and understand what they're supposed to do, the game changes drastically. Hmm. And in the age of robotics, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, there's a massive risk that people will be left behind. So what are some suggestions that you have for people to adapt to new technological advances? Yeah, so I think I think the first thing is, and I can't stress this enough, get involved. Uh, a lot of our policymakers will only make decisions if they think it equals votes. So if they think the voting base doesn't actually care about this kind of stuff, this kind of technology doing it right, they really won't act on it. And we've seen traditionally that big tech, as long as they make money, rather than spending the money on doing it right, they'll spend the money on lobbyists and marketing companies and things like that to appear that they're making changes. I think probably the biggest thing people can do to adapt is one, get involved in the conversation, understand what this technology actually means, have discussions with your family. Like, Don't think, oh, I'm just going to talk about it at work or I'm just going to talk about it to other people that care about it. This needs to become a societal discussion. So I think it's probably the first thing. Educate yourself a little bit on this. And then the next thing is um, accept that the world is changing. I've spoken to a lot of engineers, artists, um, because we used AI illustration for our book. I was a professional photographer and musician in a previous life, so I have a lot of <laughs> friends in this space. And it's almost like everybody is shaking their fist on the beach at a tsunami. Wow. You know, when you should be building a boat. Yeah. And you just it doesn't matter how angry you are. It doesn't matter how much you shake your fist. That tidal wave is coming in. So we should be spending the time to build a big enough boat that as many of us can get in as possible. So, John, who are some of the tech giants leading us in the world of artificial intelligence? So the ones that people are familiar with are um, Meta, previously Facebook. 
um, Google, and Microsoft. Like Those are kind of some of the big ones. Um, one of the ones that have been moving very quickly that people should be paying attention to is NVIDIA. So if you go to NVIDIA's website, watch some of their keynotes, they're really focusing on a lot of this emerging technology like AI, the metaverse, things that seem either fantastical or silly. They're figuring out very practical ways to use this technology. So I would say those are kind of the big four established. Now, the new ones that are coming out that are worth people paying attention to are companies like Stability AI. Um, so Stable Diffusion, which is one of the generative models that I talked about, where you take a picture of yourself, it turns yes. you into something else. Stability AI has grown incredibly in a very, very short period of time. And they're not just focused on image creation. They're focused on um, molecule detection, engineering, robotics. There's all kinds of things they're using that technology. So Stability AI is one to check out. The other kind of big name in this space um, is attached to Google. So that's DeepMind. So DeepMind's actually going to be probably creating a competitor um, against uh, OpenAI, who I'll talk about in a little bit. But some people may be familiar. DeepMind was the company that created AlphaGo, which was the um, artificial intelligence that beat the world Go champion. And then lastly, the third kind of new big player is OpenAI. So yeah. founded in 2015 by Sam Altman and Elon Musk, who I know we're going to talk about a little bit later, the goal was um, really focused around this generative AI, creating an AI. Uh, well, initially, they were founded to, to do AI for good. They were a nonprofit. They have recently become a for-profit, or I think they call it a capped profit. Uh, with a very specific focus. So they're probably the biggest ones. So DeepMind is one, OpenAI and Stability AI are, are some of the big major players. And you mentioned Elon Musk, who is most popularly, popularly known as the CEO and product architect of uh, Tesla and CEO of Twitter. And he's the founder of Neuralink and OpenAI. So what are some of the goals behind his work? Yeah, so I think if you look at Elon Musk, Elon Musk is a, a unique character, but he's not as, I think, complex as most people, I think, make out. I think he has one very specific goal, and that is to be the first person on Mars, like to focus on that. So if you look at the self-driving cars, if you look at the fact they're electric, you could say, okay, well, you know, he wants to do things that are good for the environment here. Or you could just say there aren't fossils on Mars, so he needs to create something that gets off of fossil fuels. Wow. You know, he's getting into the robotic space. The reason he has autonomous vehicles is his cars are understanding the world around him with open AI. Who's going to build the houses and buildings on Mars? Not people, robots. So a lot of the technology that he's focused on here is to become a first mover in other planets. So if you, as long as you frame that in your head, you can pretty much understand why he does certain things and takes the risks that he does to force other people to move. Because guaranteed, Ford Motors isn't thinking about building cars or bulldozers on Mars. So if he open sources his technology, what does he care? You yeah. know what I mean? So what are some of the benefits of artificial intelligence and what are some of the downfalls? Yeah. So I mean, uh, so I'll start with some of the downfalls. So I think the... Um, the, the main downfalls is that human beings don't adapt and we don't pay attention to it and we wake up one day and all of our jobs are gone. Yeah. Or, or our purpose is another way to look at it. So I think probably that's the largest. Um, there are some very practical problems you're starting to see in the Ukraine right now. And this makes me actually more nervous than a lot of other things. The Ukraine is the first place, while it happened a couple times in Iraq, but you're seeing the mass modification of consumer drones to being weaponized and becoming fully autonomous. So this is kind of like the first time you're seeing technology that was only for the military that's being developed by people on the ground. So not just like the Russian military, there you can find videos on TikTok of Ukrainian soldiers teaching other people how to weaponize a drone from Amazon. 
So those are some very practical dangers, I think, with with AI. Now, some of the um, the long term, the real benefits is we could democratize education, we could democratize healthcare. There are a lot of things that we can do that can help accelerate and expand accessibility of things that before cost a lot of money. Now there will be some people that lose their jobs. Accessibility will begin to expand. My thinking is, if we do this right, we won't end up with a lot less of the people doing these different. Um, verticals, what will happen is the price will drop, individuals' capacity will be augmented, and then more people will have access to these kinds of services than they ever had before. So that would be my big hope, but I think it um, I think it all depends. I, I have probably three scenarios where I think the world will end up um, that we can maybe talk about a little bit later. Yeah. Uh, according to an Oxford economics study, robots could take over 20 million manufacturing jobs around the world by 2030. And within the next 11 years, there could be 14 million robots put to work in China alone, which is predicted to be the world's first artificial intelligence superpower and leader. If robots eventually take all of our jobs, like you mentioned earlier, what kind of impact will that have on our economy and our society as a, as a whole? Yeah, so I think that gets to um, kind of how I'm hoping some of this will play out in the responsible disruption piece of it. So I think China is very unique. Like right now, we have two very different ways of developing artificial intelligence. In the United States, we have discussions when a, a person gets hit by a self-driving car, the state stops all self-driving car programs. The reality is self-driving cars aren't perfect, but they're much better than people in a lot of ways. They don't fall asleep. They don't get drunk. They don't, you know, they don't text while they're driving. They don't do any of those things. Well, in China... So somebody gets hit and they go, okay, well, let's figure out how to improve it and decrease it. But they have a different mentality of where they're able to try things because they don't have the same social outcry that we have here. So you've got China developing. And honestly, they have to do it. If you look at the the one-child policy they had for so long, in China, they have something called, it's like a little emperor syndrome because everyone had just one child that they ended up spoiling. Now, none of those kids, while the parents were willing to work in the factories and kill themselves for a better life, the kids don't want to do that. So China is forced to adopt robotics and AI, right? So that's very different than what's happening in the United States. What's happening in the United States is really being driven a lot by the pandemic. People are questioning the kinds of jobs that they want to do, where they want to be spending their time. You know, they had a chance to spend more time with family, maybe even reflect. And before that, they were just paycheck to paycheck to paycheck. So my hope is I think China will do what China does. And I don't know that we have any say in that. But my hope would be if you look at the first industrial revolution to the fourth, we went from doing seven days a week to five for work. And we've been stuck there for a very long time. Why we're not working three days a week is beyond me. Hmm. So if we do this correctly, I think we can produce more than we do now. People still work. You just work less partnered with the technology. Maybe one day a week you volunteer in your community to help people or be a mentor to people without parents or, you know, help your neighbors, like be a good person. And then you get three days off a week to like do whatever you want and spend time with friends. That to me seems a like a reasonable solution that keeps the economy going, increases productivity, maybe solves some of our societal problems that we've expected people to do for free by volunteering, but instead maybe they're paid to do it. I think that probably is, in a nutshell, what I'm hoping responsible disruption will look like as we move into the future. Would you say that artificial intelligence has the full capability of replacing humans? And if so, how many years will that take for that full transition? 
Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, so recently, so once in a while, whenever things like this happen, I go back to look at movies that came out like 10, 20 years yes. ago, and I just rewatched iRobot. Oh, gosh. And, right, <laughs> so for your listeners that have not watched this, in, in the movie, Will Smith is this robot-hating detective who's trying <laughs> to solve this murder, and he's having this debate with this humanoid robot. And in in this debate, Will, Will Smith is telling him, you know, you're not a person. You know, can you create a symphony? You know, can a robot make artwork? Can a robot make music? And the robot looks him in the eyes and says, can you? Mm. And so very often we tend to think of like robots and AI and humanity when the reality is part of that discussion right now. So, yes, now a robot can create a symphony. Yes, a robot can create art. But beyond that, that question that the robot asks Will Smith, can you, is probably a much deeper question. Because we might be able to try and argue that, yes, human beings can create symphonies and human beings can do this and can do these things that robots can't do. The question is, can most people do things that robots can't do? Wow. And the argument now, I would say probably not. I, I would say without a rapid adaptation, a big upskilling of our society, I do think there will be big chunks of the workforce that could be replaced by AI very, very quickly. And that's actually something we should be focused on, unless we do it responsibly, where we pair up with the AI and we say, instead of getting rid of people, we're going to eliminate 50% of the time that they have to spend doing it. So you keep work, the nature of work just changes. Should we, anybody, be worried that uh, robots will start a revolution like they did <laughs> in iRobot and become a threat to humanity? Right. So, um, so these are kind of these these big kind of esoteric questions. I think the robots, like a Terminator scenario, probably not. Mm -hmm. I mean, the reason we fight each other and we fight over things is because we have a body, right? Like, and so we need resources and assets. The reality is. It, even though an AI may exist in a robot, it's not actually the robot. It's, you know, ones and zeros and code and stuff. Yes. So the chance that they'll have the same motivation as we do is probably not super high. I don't think they're going to wake up one day and try and get rid of people. <laughs> the, the reality is if, if AI became as smart as people, it would only be as smart as us for probably a millisecond before it goes way past us. It just is, you know, its intelligence will look different. Hmm. I think probably one of the... the the biggest risks we had was something called like the paperclip conundrum, which is we all would create an AI that says, we need to optimize paperclip creation. And the AI decides the best way to do it is to get rid of all humans because humans suck up all of these resources that should be going to paperclip production. <laughs> One of the benefits I think we have, though, with generative AI is unlike that dumb AI before that just processed big amounts of data, it can actually infer that when we say we want you to create paperclips, we don't mean you can kill all humans or you can do this, it's able to go, okay, a paperclip isn't as valuable as a person. So it can start to make that without having it been programmed in. Yeah. John, I want to know a little more about you. Sure. So what was your childhood like and how did you gain a passion for collaborative robotics and artificial intelligence? Yeah. So, um, so I'm originally from Springfield, Massachusetts, but when I was eight, my family decided to become missionaries. So I ended up growing up in the United Kingdom, so England, Ireland, and Scotland. Um, which I guess probably is where I got my desire to not have people get left behind and like make sure that I'm talking to people about this kind of stuff. When I was 18, I came back to the United States to go to college. I joined the Marine Corps. So I served in the Marine Corps during 9-11. I was a professional musician, a serial entrepreneur, so I've had several different companies. When I moved to York, um, I th which is where I live, York, Pennsylvania, when I first moved there, I'd moved so much growing up that I made the decision that if I was going to live somewhere, I wanted to make a difference. And one of the first things I noticed about York when I moved, and this was maybe 15 years ago now, is 
you know, all this beautiful architecture and big factories, but no jobs. Like all the storefronts were closed, you know, boarded up. It was almost like this once industrial powerhouse had kind of collapsed in on itself. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what happened because, you know, this had happened all across the United States. And I came up with this theory that in the first industrial revolution, so with like steam, little communities across the world benefited, right, because of these first machines. In the second industrial revolution with electricity, some of those first entrepreneurs that started those companies were able to leverage that technology and grew very, very big. The third industrial revolution that was different because a lot of the, uh, at that point, a lot of the entrepreneurs had reached retirement age and they passed their businesses off to their kids. So our communities went from risk takers to caretakers. And that's a drastically different mindset. So when I moved to York, I realized that we missed this whole swath of technology, uh, the computers, the internet. And as I saw artificial intelligence and robotics, I became convinced that technology was going to be the key, but it was going to be getting ahead of these kinds of technology. And so that was really where my passion came from. I saw how we missed the third industrial revolution. And right now we have haves and have nots. And I was scared we'd have haves and have nevers. So that's why I started my robotics company. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about Tim the Robot Wizard in just a 30 minute, 30 seconds here. Yeah, so I met Tim uh, when I was doing a project with Goodwill in Kansas City. Essentially, we developed a, an artificial intelligence and neural net that was trained by people with disabilities, and Tim was one of those folks. Um, during an event, Tim had figured out how to program one of our robots. Everybody stopped looking at me. They were watching him navigate this robot, at which point he threw his hands up in the air and he said, I am Tim the Robot Wizard. So we decided to write a children's book called Tim the Robot Wizard, all about responsible disruption and me meeting Tim and him meeting all of these robots around the galaxy doing good things to help people. Wow. And I hope that the direction of artificial intelligence can uh, make its biggest and best impact um, on humanity through stories and people like like Tim that you just mentioned. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been speaking with John McElligot, founder and chief executive officer of York Exponential. You're listening to The Spark on WITF, your home for NPR and discovering all things local. I'm Anaya Falcon.